I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback from National Public Radio. Back to the Future 2. Back to the Future is our middle name here at Playback because it's the 80s. Public radio is flying under the radar, taking chances. You do know it when you see it or hear it. After eight years pawing through the NPR archives, I am always amazed at the stories I find. This month, September 88, brings us Terry Gross interviewing one of my faves, the pilot with the right stuff, Chuck Yeager. When we started the X-1 program, I had no idea what I would run into, but the point is, I I could care less, to tell you the truth. I love that X-1 kind of talk, don't you? We've also got Dan Shore with an amazing in-flight shuttle sighting. Look out the right side. There is the shuttle. And Alex Chadwick walks the battlefield as we commemorate the anniversary of the Battle of Antietam. We start off this month with an imaginary debate. On one side of the room, Democrat Michael Dukakis facing off with Republican George Bush recreating the dynamics of the 1988 presidential race. Oh, by the way, they're all played by Harry Shearer. From the Marilyn Monroe Auditorium of the John Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., the League of Women Bowlers presents Campaign 88, Debate 1. Speaking from the moderator's podium, here is your moderator, NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw. Good evening. Tonight, Vice President Bush and Governor Dukakis have agreed to participate in a historic event, the first televised debate of the 1988 election campaign. In line with the wishes of the two campaign organizations, the League has agreed to present this debate tonight in the following format. There will be three questioners alternating questions between the candidates. Bill Plant of CBS News, Patrick Buchanan, conservative commentator, and television hostess Joan Rivers to add needed frivolity. The subject of this debate will also be limited in accord with the campaign's wishes to whether there should be more debates. We'll start with Mr. Plant. Plant? That's what I said. Oh, maybe you weren't listening. Probably. Vice President Bush, you've taken a position in favor of fewer debates than Governor Dukakis wants. Doesn't this put you in the position of appearing as if you're afraid to debate him? Well, not at all, Bill. I'm glad you brought this up early in the evening while we still have the viewers because this is important, you know. I I, I know Governor Dukakis is... He's (laughs) probably a better debater than I am, you know. He's probably honing and sharpening his debating skills up at Harvard while I'm at home with my family saying the Pledge of Allegiance... All right, Governor Dukakis. Thank you, Tom. My friends, this campaign is not about who's better at debating. It's about what we're debating. The reason I'm for four debates is because, first of all, that's the number our parties originally agreed on. And secondly, because ducking the issues, you know, that that isn't what this campaign is all about. Uh, Mr. Bush. Thank you, Tom. You know, my opponent talks about tackling the tough questions. We we don't need a debate to do that out on the campaign trail every day. Tackling the tough questions, 
being in the tough photo opportunities, getting our point across. I think more debates would bore the American people. We don't want to do that. You know, one thing the Reagan-Bush administration has been very strong on, and we're going to continue to be strong on in a Bush-Quail administration, is, is keeping the American people entertained. We just have to do that. Uh, please, the league asks you to hold your applause until it's closing credit roll. And now, our next question for Vice President Bush from Ms. Rivers. Thank you, Tom. I, I, first, I, I have to point out, I'm only here tonight because Linda Ellaby was busy eating. <laughs> now, 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 seriously, Vice President Bush, you just said you don't want to bore us, but I mean, have you seen what they're doing on Fox with that kid, Ross Schaefer? I mean, ah, please, this boy needs to go back to this jockey camp where they found him. I mean, don't you think debates would be better than that? I mean, even if they were debates between, oh, I don't know, Liz Taylor and her scale? Ah. <laughs> Joan, that's one debate Barbara and I would be sure to watch, you know, along with the, the whole family, Mexicans and Americans, uh, my blood coursing through, through all of their veins, except for Barbara, of course. But, uh, no, we'd, we'd, we'd sit there eating pork rinds and playing horseshoes, maybe the, maybe the country station on the radio in the background, and maybe at the end, all together as a family, we'd say the Pledge of Allegiance. And, and we might even read the part of the currency together where, where it says, in God we trust. Uh, Governor Dukakis. Tom, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. That's what this campaign is all about. But I just want to ask Vice President Bush one thing. George, if you're so interested in debating, as you say, why do your people propose Bob Costas as a moderator? Why do your people propose Maury Povich and Geraldo Rivera as a panelist? I'd say when the Bush campaign was figuring out how to handle this debate issue, the question I'd have to ask is, where was George? All right, thank you, Governor. By the rules agreed on with the League, closing statements have been dispensed with in the interest of maximizing network coverage. Were there winners in tonight's debate? Were there losers? Well, as it should be in our democracy, the decision is up to you, the viewers. In the meantime, only time will tell. I'm Tom Brokaw. I'll see you next debate. On September 29, 1988, the U.S. space program got back on its feet with the launch of the first shuttle since the Challenger disaster in 1986. Here's a report from Robert Siegel. Most of us who saw the shuttle go up this morning saw it on television or listened to the event on radio. Dan Shore had a different experience of it. Dan, where were you? Well, I was in Orlando coming back from a lecture in Florida last night. The Eastern Airlines plane didn't take off when it should have. The pilot said it was connected with activity of the shuttle. Uh, it was not known then whether it would be launched or whether there would be another delay. The plane then took off, broke through the clouds at about 5,000 feet, and suddenly the excited voice of the pilot came on saying, Look out the right side. There is the shuttle. And... So we all, I was on the left side, but we were all on the right side pretty soon. The plane began tilting over. We all looked out of the window, and there we saw this gigantic vapor trail going straight up. We had not seen the actual liftoff. We saw the thing as it broke through the clouds. We watched it. We craned. We looked all the way up and followed this vapor trail until we saw the separation. I never thought I'd look to see that. The shuttle from the air. Thank you.
And speaking of little fluffy clouds, here's the story of an aviation legend from Terry Gross. Tom Wolfe called my guest general Chuck Yeager the most righteous of all the possessors of the right stuff. Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, was the story of why military men were willing, even delighted, to fly high-performance aircraft against astonishingly deadly odds. Chuck Yeager was a fighter pilot in World War II. After surviving many dogfights, he took another risky job, testing high-performance aircraft. He rapidly earned the reputation of America's top test pilot, and he was the first pilot to fly faster than the speed of sound. He made that historic flight October 14, 1947, in an X-1 aircraft, which he rode 40,000 feet high, traveling over 660 miles per hour. In 1953, he established a world speed record of 1,650 miles per hour in an X-1A rocket plane. During his long Air Force career, Yeager served as Assistant Chief of Test Flight Operations at Edwards Air Force Base, commanded the Airspace Research Pilot School, and oversaw five squadrons of combat aircraft in Vietnam. He retired from the Air Force in 1975. Ten years later, he became the author of a best-selling autobiography. He's just completed a follow-up memoir called Press On, Further Adventures in the Good Life. Lots of Americans read about Yeager's adventures in his autobiography and in The Right Stuff. Now his TV commercials have made his face almost as recognizable as his name. One thing I think you probably don't remember, uh, I was on the cover of Time magazine in 48 and on the cover of Newsweek in 54, and hardly a month went by in the old days that some major publication didn't get, do a story about me. But, but you're right, uh, what happened... They knew the name, but then uh, when I started doing the ACDLCO commercials, uh, they associated my face with the name, and that, that really exploded it. You know, Tom Wolfe implies in his book, The Right Stuff, that you have the prototypical pilot's voice, the voice that became the prototypical pilot's voice that you'll hear reassuring you <laughs> when you're taking off in an airplane. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, <clears throat> I don't think so. I would obviously came from West Virginia, and I always had a drawl, and I have a distinctive voice uh, on the radio, and it, uh, I suppose it made a good story, and uh, there may some, be some truth to it. Uh, I'm not one to confirm or, or deny it. Let's talk about actually breaking the sound barrier. Did you have any idea what the heck the sound barrier was when you took on the mission of trying to break it? Well, I, sure, I knew the laws of nature, that uh, sound travels at some 760 miles an hour at sea level and some 660 miles an hour at 35,000 feet and higher. I also knew we had uh, buffeting problems uh, because of shock waves because I experienced those in, in uh, air combat, you know, in World War II when I was flying Mustangs uh, over Germany. I also experienced it in the early jets, the P-80s and P-84s. I knew exactly what the problem was. So what image did you have in your mind about breaking the sound barrier for civilians like us? You almost see this uh, invisible shield or, or a wall well, that somebody I, will be I, penetrating I, as they break it. Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, you know... Uh, give any thought to you, to tell you the truth, uh, Terry, because uh, I was pretty well duty-oriented uh, at that time. I'd been in a war where, uh, you know, a lot of guys get killed, but uh, I'd learned to discipline myself to concentrate on what you're doing and forget about the outcome because you can't do an awful lot about it anyway. So when we started the X-1 program, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea what I would run into, but the point is I, I could care less, to tell you the truth, that I just had to press on with my mission. So, Was there a worst-case scenario in either your mind or the mind of the people who were commanding the mission? But what, what might happen the first time a plane broke 
Well, no, we didn't have any idea because, see, we're fooling around with an unknown factor, and we didn't have any wind tunnel data, obviously, uh, in the region of the speed of sound, and no other airplane had ever been there. So we didn't really know, and about half of the engineers, as I recall, in talking to them, uh, didn't give us much chance of uh, succeeding. And uh, the other half were, you know, said, well, you, may, you might and you might not. But the point is, uh, when I started, the outcome really didn't make any difference at all whether or not I pressed on with the mission uh, because it was my duty to do it, and I was probably the most qualified guy to do it. Now, the head of the mission wanted to hire as the first pilot to break the sound barrier a, uh, the, a single man because uh, of the possible dangers. And I was, I was wondering how you felt about, uh, about your wife, uh, about the risk for, for her, no, knowing how dangerous everyone thought this mission might be. Well, flying combat's dangerous, too. But, uh, true. <laughs> that's, I participated <laughs> in that, and then when I came home and got married, uh, any... And and after, we have to go back. Glennis and I had a very good understanding, and uh, you'll see it come out. You saw it come out in my autobiography and also the new book, the, the Press On. But I was flying when I married her, and she always would make that statement, well, you know, whatever you do is okay with me. Uh, uh, and that's that was our attitude. And uh, and she was a great supporter for, for me getting involved in research flying because I, do, I was really duty-oriented. And uh, since it was my job and she realized it and that's what I wanted to do and she went right along with it. When you realized that you'd, you'd broken the speed of sound, that your mission was accomplished, did you stay up in the air a while and just have a good time and celebrate? I didn't have, no, you can't stay up because see a rocket, you you burn out all of your fuel. Uh, it only had to last two and a half minutes and then, and then you're gliding down to make a dead stick landing on Rogers Dry Lake out there at Edwards or then Muroc Air Base. Uh, but I... Sure, I was a lady. I did a couple of rolls, and and when I got down, since I was pretty well beat up from a horseback riding accident a couple of days before, I was I was kind of bushed. And uh, also, you're sitting in that cold airplane; it, you really get cold soaked, and it's good to get out into the warm sun. And uh, you know, and also their program was classified, so it's not exactly as as the film The Right Stuff depicts it. But uh, we knew it was classified, and just a couple, three of us had a little party that night. I mean, big party, if you want to call it that. Well, because it was classified, you even had to speak in code on, in your radio communications while you were in Oh, uh, yeah. We, Ridley and I knew what we were doing, and, you know, you, you really don't say a heck of a lot anyway when you're flying. <laughs> what were the reasons for classifying it? Why was it so top secret? Because of what we found out. And the reason was, uh, if you recall, uh, uh, once we got into the region of the speed of sound, we lost our elevator effectiveness. Now, Terry, this may get a little technical, but all airplanes, light airplanes, if you looked at, at them, they have a horizontal stabilizer or a tail, and on the trailing edge of that horizontal stabilizer and the elevators are flippers. And when you move the control stick back, that elevator goes up, and that's what controls the attitude of your airplane. It makes the nose go up or go down. And when we got into a, up to about .93 Mach number, or 93% of the speed of sound, we lost the effectiveness of that elevator on the X-1, and we couldn't control our airplane. But we had built a capability into the X-1 of moving the whole horizontal stabilizer or tailplane, and we found out that, uh, lo and behold, we could control the X-1 through Mach 1 with that horizontal stabilizer. Now, it was interesting to me, when that happened, we found that out. Then, of course, we started building flying tails on our airplanes, that, that our combat airplanes that were built uh, three or four years later. And it was amusing to me to find out that the British and the French and the Soviet Union didn't find out that little trick for five years. That was the reason it was classified, and mm -hmm. rightly so.
Chuck Yeager is my guest, and he's written a new memoir titled Press On, Further Adventures in the Good Life. How, how else did breaking the sound barrier change aviation? Well, it opened up uh, space to us. Up until that time, you recall, uh, we would never, never had had an airplane uh, out beyond the speed of sound, and we didn't know what uh, problems we would run into, and, and that flying tail that I mentioned is one of the secrets we found out that, that solved a lot of problems. Uh, we also developed uh, higher thrust engines that could drive uh, fighter aircraft or operational aircraft through the speed of sound. Once we got beyond the speed of sound, then there's no other barriers uh, other than heat, uh, and that opened up space f- for us. Now, this is, this is a, a very exciting time when you were flying these test missions. Uh, you had a few close calls, though, when you were flying the, the X-1 and the, the X-1A. There was one time, I think it was in the X-1A, which was the follow-up plane to the X-1, where you had gotten too high. Well, and, too yeah. fast, uh, Terry. Uh, see, in those days, back in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, we were a lot of milestones to be broken. And uh, we were moving out in speed with broken Mach 1 in 1947. And 1953 rolled up, and we were working up above Mach 2. And we were just trying to go faster and faster to open up the universe. And the X-1A, I only made four flights in it. But on that particular flight, I'm setting at some, you know, 80,000 feet uh, going uh, 2.5 Mach number or two and a half times the speed of sound, around 1,600 miles an hour. And we found out in that during that flight, that the tail was not big enough on the X-1 to stabilize it, like the vertical stabilizer and the horizontal stabilizer didn't keep the airplane going straight ahead when we got out beyond 2.3 Mach number, and the airplane just swapped ends and went through some wild gyrations. And, and, and back in those days, we didn't have ejection seats, so and you were pretty well uh, locked into the airplane and couldn't get out, so you have to ride it down. And, uh, yes, uh, I was a little apprehensive about where I was going to hit in the high Sierras out there, but... Fortunately, I, I stayed with the airplane and, and had enough uh, instinct to uh, recover from an inverted spin and then uh, pop it out of the normal spin and, and uh, find a Rogers dry lake and come back and land. And I, I tell you, it was a wild ride, but the way I look at it, you either do or you don't. And, you know, if you don't, you, you live happily ever after. So, You obviously really love flying. What's an example of why you love it so much? What's, what's like your most heavenly experience <laughs> up in the skies <laughs> in a plane? Terry, I'm not, you know, you've got a good, you've got a good way with words. Uh, me, uh, flying an airplane is a job, and it's the way I make my living. And, uh, yes, I enjoyed flying because I, I was quite good at it. And anyone who is good at a job enjoys it. Uh, they should, anyway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you so much for talking with us. Okay, Terry. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away And now, the Battle of Antietam. Here's NPR's Scott Simon. September 17th is an important date in American history. The Constitution of the United States was signed in 1787. But there is another grimmer occasion to remember. This is recorded as the single bloodiest day in American history, the day in 1862 when 23,000 soldiers died or were wounded or went missing on a small piece of ground by Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg, Maryland. In a moment, we'll go to the Antietam battlefield, but before we do, 
Let's remember the events of that late summer in 1862. The Civil War had divided the country for almost a year and a half. The Union Army was often inept, but held its ground by strength of numbers. The Confederate forces were better led, but less well equipped. Many thought Britain and France were about to help the Confederacy, but President Lincoln meant to prevent such support by proclaiming emancipation, freedom for slaves, to make it morally difficult for foreign powers to ally themselves with the South. President Lincoln worried about timing, though. If the announcement came when the North was weak, it might be portrayed as a ploy to encourage a slave rebellion rather than a statement of principle. Lincoln and the Union needed a victory. From the battlefield of Antietam, NPR's Alex Chadwick takes up the story. Despite the famous dictum of General Douglas MacArthur, the one about old soldiers never dying, at Antietam, it's war which seems immortal. The demise of warriors is apparent everywhere, in the granite monuments to the dead scattered in the open fields, in the graveyard stillness of the place. They were almost all volunteers. Uh, The Confederates had some uh, draftees, conscripts, as they called them then, but for the most part, they were all volunteers. Historian Stephen Sears has a new biography of the Union General George McClellan. Sears' book about Antietam, Landscape Turned Red, was published five years ago. He says both sides were ready to fight fiercely at Antietam because they believed in what they were doing. They came from every, every walk of life, uh, mostly farmers because mostly it was a rural country, uh, and on both sides they tended to be pretty much alike uh, as far as that's concerned. What were they volunteering for? Well, the Confederates were volunteering to, uh, mostly to defend their country against the, the uh, invaders uh, and also, of course, to defend what they saw as their way of life. Uh, the Union boys were really fighting to, to preserve the Union. As things stood, General Robert E. Lee maneuvered his southern forces across the Potomac into Maryland and north for the first big effort by the Confederates to fight on the enemy's ground. In response, General George McClellan led an army of federal soldiers out from Washington to turn back the southern advance. He didn't believe it at the time, but McClellan's forces outnumbered those of the Confederates by two to one. Paul Childs is a park historian and guide at Antietam. Ten days ago, we stood on a rise of land looking over the battlefield. Lee is fighting a battle with an army that is the flower of the army. He's only got 40,000 men up here. This is the smallest and raggedest that his army ever was, except on the road to Appomattox in April of 65. But he's got, and an, the morale of his army is high. The men are used to working with one another. The officers have confidence in one another. They know that initiative is going to be rewarded. McClellan, on the other hand, is not giving very much central direction. His corps commanders, his six corps commanders, end up fighting more or less on their own. And uh, there's a lot of confusion about who's in charge of what part of the field and uh, who's supposed to do what when. And his orders that he gives are very vague. And as a result of that, uh, there's a tremendous amount of casualties. The men deserved better. That's what it boils down to on the Union side. By the evening of September 16th, the armies were pretty much in place on the ridges of the valley. Antietam Creek ran north and south between them. It rained that night. Everyone must have gotten wet. Accounts from soldiers of the time mentioned bad food and too little even of that. So they would have been hungry and soggy and probably scared. They all knew a big fight was coming. The park ranger, Paul Childs. On this particular battlefield, 
the terrain has a lot to do with it. It's gently rolling. There's a lot of little dips and swales. There were a number of instances where troops from both sides ran into each other, essentially just stumbled into each other in the smoke and confusion at very short range. There's also, it's harvest time, September 17, about half the fields that had corn in them had been harvested. So about half the fields are still up. As a matter of fact, Miller's cornfield up here changed hands six times in two and a half hours. And Joe Hooker, who commanded a Union Corps that started the battle in the, at crack of dawn and on the morning of the 17th of September, described the action by saying that uh, the northern and greater portion of the cornfield was cut as closely as could have been cut with a knife. The slain laid in rows, precisely as they had stood in their ranks a few moments before. It was never my duty to witness a more dismal, bloody battlefield. And that's the official report of a young, very ambitious Union Major General describing the effect of his cannons on Confederate lines of battle in the cornfield, in Miller's cornfield. The guide gestured toward a farm to the north, the site of the cornfield where the Battle of Antietam began. It's still farmland, he said, and he mentioned the name of the farmer who's there now. A short drive brought us to a silo, where an old man was using a tractor to store away ground-up ears and stalks of corn, feed for animals. Howdy. You Mr. Collar? That's right. Hi. You own the farm here? Yes. Is this the farm where the cornfield is? Yes. You're referring to the field that had the bloody battle in. Yeah. That's right there. Right there? Yeah, that's the field we're cutting corn out of. He pointed across a few hundred feet of farmyard to a field which was mostly harvested, but with some of it still head tall in standing corn. Does it uh, uh, mean something to harvest corn out of that field? To feel any different there than... Not to me. No? No. Just like any other field? Right. Whole farm's the same thing to me. Could we take a walk back over there? Sure. Thanks. The cornfield is on the northern portion of the battle line. About dawn, 126 years ago today, Union forces commanded by General Hooker were scouting the area, looking for the enemy. They found him in the cornfield of what was then Miller's Farm, hiding from the Union artillery. Historian Stephen Sears. See, the fighting at the cornfield was really on the four edges because the corn was at full growth at that point and you couldn't see anything buddy in it. Uh, but when they came out, uh, that's when most of the fighting was done. And that's where most of the artillery was aimed and so on. And uh, then there were counterattacks back and forth so that they kept going over the same ground repeatedly. And they kept going over from different directions. It was first north-south and then it became east-west. And one force would, would go into the corn, uh, emerge on the other side, be shot at, and then withdraw back exactly, through the corn. Exactly, right. Yeah. They would literally expend all their, their cartridges on this uh, these at the fence line on, on each side, as it turned out, on each side of the uh, cornfield. And then they would uh, they'd run out of ammunition and have to pull back. Or they were so massacred that there wasn't anyone left to pull back. The 1st Texas uh, Regiment attacked through the cornfield and was 82% losses in at not more than 20 minutes. What happened to the people who were wounded there? 
They the, just stayed there. They just lay there they on just the field. Lay, yeah, they kept getting run over, literally, by uh, some of them by artillery, and uh, others just were run over by, by the men charging. And they were there for most of the day, really, because there was no way to get them out. It was still kind of, it was contested ground. Confederates and, and federal soldiers alike? Yes, indeed. Yep, right next to each other sometimes. The whole northern part of the battle, which was this area, was fought over really three times, three major offensives, and uh, each side of that square is only about a mile, so you can easily walk it. And um, in that mile square area, just about 18,000 men were, were hit during this, uh, this morning's battle. From Miller's cornfield, from the sunken road nearby, from the Burnside Bridge later in the day, in that which endures from Antietam, those who command soldiers must understand what the weapons they use can do. In large part, this is the bloodiest day in American history because the commanders didn't realize their firearms were too modern for their tactics. Civil War officers used the examples of Napoleon, but since the brilliant French general's defeat earlier in the century, armies had begun using rifles. A Civil War-era caplock musket was loaded from the muzzle, it weighed nine pounds, and it took 25 or 30 seconds between shots. But the inside of the barrel was grooved, that is, rifled, which sent bullets spinning on a trajectory with much greater accuracy than the old smoothbore barrels. A smoothbore could hit a man at 50 yards about half the time. The new rifles were that good at 200 yards. It took an awful time for the generals to grasp that while Napoleon remained brilliant, his battle tactics were made useless by the rifle. The sunken road was a grassy depression that ran between farm fields. At the end of the battle, the men called it the Bloody Lane, and it's called that still. Confederates waited in the road where they couldn't be seen from the fields. The fighting started there a little while after things subsided at the cornfield. The Union forces really could not see the lane itself until they were within 50 to 80 yards. There's a ridge line that runs across to the east of that of bloody lane, and so it was literally point-blank range. And uh, officers recorded later that the whole lines of men went down and just in one fire. The, the volume of fire at the bloody lane was probably the greatest of any single spot on the battlefield, and that, of course, was why the casualties were so great. Through the middle of the day, the slaughter worked its way south along Antietam Creek. About noon, a Union general, Ambrose Burnside, directed his men to cross a bridge over the stream, which is about 100 feet wide at that point. Several hundred riflemen from Georgia were behind some trees on a hill on the other side. The bridge still stands, and at its base, the water runs shallow. You could walk across it easily today, as you could have back then. But the Yankees were ordered across the narrow bridge, and hundreds were slaughtered. Nobody won the Battle of Antietam. Lee was forced back into the South, and Lincoln decided that was moment enough to declare he would free the slaves. The Europeans would stay out of the war. It would remain American. The sheer uh, intimacy, I guess, of the battlefield uh, is, is astonishing. I do not understand how these men could have charged and charged again uh, into that kind of a, a destruction. Well, they did, though. Yes, indeed, they did. There were very few unwounded prisoners at Antietam. It's amazing. Most of the men who were captured were wounded. 
No one gave up in that fight. Historian Stephen Sears. European military observers at Antietam were contemptuous of what they saw, the clumsy maneuvering, the missed opportunities. They thought Americans were unskilled at the art of war. They had seen what the rifle did, but they dismissed it until given the opportunity to make their own discoveries in 1914. Beginning in the 1870s and the 1880s, veterans groups erected granite and marble markers on the grounds of Antietam where regiments from the Union and the Confederacy were cut down. Many of the monuments follow a particular motif. They are tall and angular, like cold stone sentries, stunned and still struck dumb by what happened. This is Alex Chadwick reporting. Well, that's the Civil War in a nutshell. And if they had had tape recorders and public radio in 1862, I am certain an NPR reporter would have been there. But we'll always have the 80s and Farrah Fawcett hair. So thanks for joining us. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback.